uh, Thanksgiving is, is a, it's a great opportunity for us to pause and just reflect on the things that we can be thankful for and practice gratitude. That's something that we should always be doing, but I think this weekend, maybe more than other ones, is, is it gives us an opportunity to really um, think about what it means to be thankful. When I think of thankfulness, I want to introduce you to somebody that I think uh, epitomizes thankfulness. His name is Nick Vujicic. Some of you probably know who I'm talking about. He's pretty famous. He's a man born without arms or legs. He has no arms and he has no legs. If you look at him physically, he literally consists of a head and a body. And that is it. And if, if, if you think of anybody that could kind of get caught up in self-pity and not be thankful, it would be him. And yet his message is a message of hope and a message of thankfulness. He's an evangelical Christian. He started a ministry called Life Without Limbs. He's a motivational speaker. He speaks all over the world and he speaks about what it means to be a person who focuses on what is good in life and what you can be thankful for instead of the things that are hard and things that can be negative. And he has had so much impact around the world. His big catchphrase is this, attitude is altitude. It's all about attitude. Living a life of thanksgiving, living a life of gratitude. I have a little short video here I want you to see, Nick, because it's really inspiring and I think will get us thinking about what it means to be thankful. I wasn't ready. legs, but I'm very thankful that I have my little chicken drumstick here. <laughs> People freak out when they see me for the first time. It's so cool. I was at a water slide uh, all by myself. Everyone obviously at the bottom of the slide is looking up and waiting for other people to come down. And here I come and they're freaking out. They're like, you know, like this. And I was so tempted to look at myself and go, what happened? You know. There were times where I sort of looked at my life and thinking, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. And you keep on concentrating on the things that you wish you had or the things that you wish you didn't have. And you sort of forget what you do have. And there's no point, I believe, in my life where I wish I had arms, legs, I wish I had arms, legs, I wish I had arms, legs, because wishing won't help. But what I've seen in life are just a couple key principles. And the first thing that I've seen is to be thankful. It's hard to be thankful, man. I tell you, when I was eight years old, I, I sort of summed up my life and thought, I'm never going to get married. I'm, you know, I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have a life of purpose. What kind of a husband am, am I going to be if I can't even hold my wife's hand? It's a lie to think that you're not good enough. It's a lie to think that you're not worth anything. I can't feel my hands. <laughs> I love life. You know, so many people come and say, how come you smile so much? And I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's a long story. <laughs> but it's very simple at the same time. You see, it's very hard to smile sometimes in life. There are things that happen that you don't know and you don't understand and you don't know if you're going to get through it. You know, you go through your storms in life and you don't know how long this storm is going to be. And today I want to share with you some principles that I've learned in my life that you can use in yours. Being patient 
beautiful. I tell you, it's the hardest day. But I realize I may not have hands to hold my wife's hand. But when the time comes, I'll be able to hold her heart. I don't need hands to hold her heart. You know, it is scary to know how many girls have eating disorders. It is scary to know how many people are just angry at life because of their situation at home and angry at others. It's scary to know how many people actually feel like they're worth nothing. Every single girl right here, right now, I want you to know that you are beautiful. You are gorgeous just the way you are. And you boys, you're the man. On this DVD, I share my experiences in life of how I've overcome challenges and seen a new, fresh perspective in life. To be thankful, to dream big, and to never give up. I speak to children, youth, and adults about key issues and principles that I've applied in my life that has given me the strength to conquer all that comes before me. Inspiring, hey? Watch that. And his impact globally is significant. He has um, done, done incredible things and touched so many people's lives um, just, just in his witness and in his message. Um, God has used this man because he has chosen the way of gratitude instead of the way of self-pity. And he has spoken a message of, of focusing on being thankful instead of focusing on the struggles. So today I want to talk about the role of thankfulness and how important it is in our lives and why it matters so much. Being thankful doesn't always come easy, let's be honest. It's often more natural to focus on the hard parts of life, the things that we struggle with, the things that stress us out. It's easy to focus on those things and kind of lose sight of the really good things that are in our life. And we often just miss what's right in front of us. And as I was thinking about this, in North America here, I think life is so busy for so many of us that maybe it's not even the struggles that distract us, but it's just the busyness. And we don't even take time to reflect and appreciate the things that we can be thankful for. Thankfulness is not, it's not just a good idea. Thankfulness is actually commanded of us. As you look at the scriptures, this is, it's not really an option. We are called and commanded to be thankful people. The scripture talks a lot about this. Those who follow Jesus, thankfulness should be a natural byproduct of who we are and the kind of people that we are becoming. It really should be a defining characteristic of our life. I want to show you a couple verses that speak about this, and here's just a few. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So instead of focusing on the anxiety, pray and be thankful. Focus on the thankfulness part of it. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. When I have young adults come to me and say, Chris, I, what's God's will for my life? I say, why don't you go read 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Three things, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks. These are the three things that really matter, three things that should really define who we are as Christ followers. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves be committed to, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Thankfulness isn't just an option for Christians. This is something that we really should intentionally practice. It should be a defining characteristic of us. 
We read through the Psalms this summer. As you read through the Psalms, you can't get very far without seeing this incredible attitude of thankfulness. The psalmists, despite difficulties in their life, are constantly praising God, thanking God, uh, lifting up adoration, extolling the name of the Lord over and over again. You see that throughout the Psalms. There's, there's, there's this attitude of thankfulness. Great Christian writers have picked up on this. They've written extensively about the importance of thankfulness. Here's just a few quotes for you. Charles Finney, a state of mind that sees God in everything is evidence of growth, of growth in grace and a thankful heart. A.W. Tozer says this, Gratitude is an offering precious in the sight of God, and it is one that the poorest of us can make and not be poor, but richer for having made it. Charles Spurgeon, It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. And then Diedrich Bonhoeffer, It is only with gratitude that life becomes rich. Thankfulness is a theme that is pervasive throughout the scriptures and throughout Christian history. It is it is a defining characteristic of those who say they follow Christ. So with the time remaining this morning, I want to talk about what Jesus spoke about in terms of thankfulness. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19, and we're going to use this passage and uh, continue to talk about thankfulness specifically from Jesus' perspective. This is a great story, one that you'll all be familiar with, but it never hurts to read it and study it and uh, wrap our heads around it. So here we go. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise, go, your faith has made you well. So we're going we're gonna to jump into this passage. There's two things that I want to lay out in terms of cultural background so that we understand more fully what's going on in this beautiful story. First of all, let's talk about lepers. Lepers is this terrible skin disorder. You start losing feelings in your nerves, and then you injure yourself really easily, and then you get infected, and uh, later stages in life, you start losing appendages. And so people that have had leprosy for quite a while, most of them have lost their fingers, their toes, part of their feet, it even starts getting into their face. Uh, it's an awful, awful disease. It's absolutely devastating. It's under, it was understood to be at the time, and still very much is today, uh, understood to be highly contagious. Um, so sick people, when they had leprosy, any sign of the skin disease, they were sent outside of the community. They were not allowed to be part of their village or their city. They were sent out. They were basically quarantined, and they had to live with other people uh, who had leprosy or a skin disease. This is why this, this scene happens outside of the village. Jesus is traveling towards a village, and outside of that village, there's this leper colony. They're outside of the city. They're not allowed to be part of the community. And the lepers, they stand at a distance and they shout. They can't come up to healthy people. That's not allowed. You've got to stand at a long distance so that you don't give your disease to somebody else. Lepers are not just physically unclean. They're socially and religiously and politically unclean. So they're forced to spend their lives as outsiders in the community, and they are considered cursed. They're considered absolutely cursed people. This was the ultimate sickness. 
Back then, it was very much a communal culture, so much more than it is today. So when you are asked to leave your village or your city or your family, it is like the worst thing that could happen to you. You're absolutely cursed. You're no longer part of the community. You're no longer part of the, of the life that, that everyone was so accustomed to. You were an outsider. You were cursed. You were on the outskirts of, of everything. This was an awful thing. It was the ultimate shame. Now, I've seen this actually firsthand. This isn't just a first century Palestine issue. Uh, earlier this year in January, I was in India, and we started supporting an orphanage in northern India. And it's an orphanage for children. They're, most of their parents are actually still alive, but their parents are lepers. Their children don't have leprosy, but their parents are lepers, and their children grew, grew up in this leper colony. And there's absolutely no hope for them in this colony. They can't go to school. Their parents don't have any money. They don't have any jobs. And so if the kids stay in this leper colony, there's nothing for them. And so this orphanage has been set up in order to help them get out and actually have hope and have uh, purpose in their life and ha have the ability to make something of themselves. And they still are in good relationship with their parents and go back to the leper colony. So I got to go see two different leper colonies in northern India. And I'll tell you, it was... Uh, it, it really is something else. You know, people that, the full-blown people that had leprosy, they are missing, they just got a stub on their arm. They have no hand, they have no finger. They're walking around on sandals, and their sandals are way too big because they've lost not only their toes, but most of their foot. So they're walking, it's starting to show up on their face. It's really, really sad, and it's still happening. And they are social outcasts. This isn't just physical for them. They live in leper colonies. So they're outside of the city, or even if they're in the city, they live in a walled community and they're not really allowed out. People are scared of them because they think it's highly contagious. Now, uh, uh, medicine has proven that it's actually not highly contagious, which is why I was in there and I don't have leprosy and people don't worry about that anymore. It's really more, it, it's, an it's a, a sanitation issue. But anyways, these, I saw firsthand, this is not just a physical disease, it is so much a social, cultural, religious disease, and you are absolutely cursed. You are stuck living in a community where everyone else is cursed. You have no hope. In India, they say that uh, education is free for all children, but parents have to go sign their kids up in the school system. So when a parent shows up and he has no fingers or hand, the school system will say, your kid's not allowed to come here. So their kids aren't even allowed to go, go to school, even though the, the country says they are. There's such a social stigma against lepers. Of course, there's no hope for them to get work, and so they, they, they literally live off of other people's charity. Most of them actually being Christian charity is what helps these lepers uh, even have some, some uh, life in them, um, some life worth living. And so it's incredibly sad. It's, it's very much the same in India as it is in first century Palestine that leprosy is not just a disease. It is a permanent badge of how worthless you are of how dehumanizing you have become, or dehuman you've become. It's incredibly, incredibly sad. And this is what Jesus is dealing with. This is what leprosy was like back then. So that helps you understand leprosy. Second thing I want to talk about before we jump into this is Samaritans. Most of you probably know this already, but it's good to get a refresher. Samaria is between Judea and Galilee. It was part of the former northern kingdom of Israel. It was taken over by the Assyrians in 720, 722 BC, so uh, 700 years before Christ. And the Assyrians came in and they, they married and they started having families with the locals there. And so it's very much a mix of race and a mix of religion. It's a mix of pagan and Jewish religion. And so uh, in Samaria, instead of going to Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple, they set up their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And this was like the worst possible thing that you could do if you were a Jew. You, God lives in the temple in Jerusalem. 
And so how dare you set up a temple somewhere else and say that's where God is. And so there is this absolute hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans were the worst of the worst. They were absolute bitter enemies. One of the worst insults a Jewish person could receive is being called a Samaritan. If you really wanted to insult somebody, and more than insult, like, like just absolutely hurt their feelings, just devastate them, you call them a Samaritan. It's worse than calling them a dog. That's how, that's how, how deep this racism was, this hostility was between Jews and Samaritans. Now, I realize today that we struggle with racism, but nothing on this scale, nothing compares to how deep it went. Um, you do not want to be called a Samaritan if you are a Jew. And so, uh, Samaritans are the worst of the worst. They have been utterly forsaken by God. They have set up their own temple. And any good Jew would not only uh, not talk to a Samaritan, they would absolutely and totally ignore them. You, they are basically non-existent. They are the worst of the worst. So if you're a good Jew you stay away from the Samaritans. So there's our cultural background. So let's get into our story here. Jesus is traveling on the border of Galilee and Samaria. There's 10 lepers. They call out. They ask for pity. We're not specifically told. I think this is really interesting if these lepers are Jews or Samaritans. You notice the text doesn't say that. But they're on the border of Galilee and Samaria. So they could be a mix or both or one. But the readers of Luke who are reading this, this for the first time, the readers of Luke, they're going to naturally assume that these are Jewish um, people that have leprosy because if they were Samaritans, Jesus would have nothing to do with them, right? Because a good Jewish teacher would never have anything to do with Samaritan. Um, they don't mingle. Either way, these lepers are acting in very typical cultural fashion. They are living outside of the village. They're outcast and they're standing at a distance. They're doing exactly what they are supposed to do. They call out Jesus, Master. Jesus, Master. This term it denotes one who has authority. You only call somebody master if you recognize their authority over you and your willingness to submit to them. And they do that. They say, Jesus, master. And this really is the irony that runs through all of the Gospels throughout um, Jesus' life. It is the outsiders. It is the poor. It's the oppressed. It's the rejected who respond to Jesus. It is they who recognize who he is as opposed to the religious elite or the leaders, very few acknowledge him, the upper middle class. It is the poor that are really drawn to Christ. Um, probably because they don't, have, they don't have the pride, the same pride issues. I think it's interesting to note that the same thing happens today. Christianity today, if you look at it, it is growing in poorer countries. South America, Africa, Southeast Asia. This is where Christianity is growing. And yet here in North America, in Europe, Christianity is dwindling in and and one one wonders what is, what's really going on here. Uh, perhaps it's got something to do with the fact that um, in first world countries, there's pride and we're elite and we don't feel the need to submit or call anybody master. Whereas those who don't struggle with those things, they're, they're happy to admit that Jesus is Lord and that he is master and acknowledge who he is. They have no problem submitting to Jesus. By calling Jesus master, these lepers place themselves in a position of subordination to Jesus, and they're hoping they're going to get something out of him, right? Master, have pity on us. Jesus' answer, he says, go show yourselves to the priests. Let me clarify this. The priests are purity inspectors. It's their job to diagnose leprosy. It's their job to declare leprosy gone. They're not the ones actually doing the healing. They function more like health care consultants. So again, pretty normal. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. On their way, the lepers are cleansed. So somewhere in between when they called out to Jesus and when they were running to the priest, they are cleansed. They're healed. 
so they don't actually make it to the temple priest before they end up being healed. And then the text tells us that one of the ten saw that he was cleansed. This one recognized the divine healing that had happened in his life, and he immediately turns around and he goes back because he is driven to thank God, to thank Jesus for this divine healing. One, where are the other nine? I was reflecting on this the last week or two. And I can't help, I'm trying to picture it in my mind, how this went down. They're all running and they probably all start recognizing that they're healed, that their fingers have grown back or whatever it is, and they start becoming overwhelmed. Oh my goodness, like I'm actually healed. You wonder what the other nine did, like what was going through their minds. I'm going to go back to my family and go show. I'm going to go to the priest and get a certificate that this is gone. I'm going to go back and get a job and enter into functional society. My life is back. My life is good. I'm going, I'm going back and living like a normal person. I imagine those are the things that they were doing. You know, the other nine basically got on with their lives. They experienced this healing and they went on and got on with their lives. This happens a lot, I think, even today. People see a need and they're all about Jesus. They're all about the church. They recognize their need. And then more often than not, Jesus shows up and helps them in the situations that they find themselves in, whether their kids are struggling or they're looking for answers in life or life might feel a little bit empty, whatever the situation is. And then they find what they're looking for in Jesus or in the church or both. And, and Jesus shows up. But I can't help but wonder, this is a bit of a picture of humanity, I think, that uh, most of us are like the nine. Jesus meets us in our struggles, but when it's fixed, kind of forget about it and just kind of go on with our lives, don't we? Go on as if nothing's really happened. You know, one chose to go back and thank God. The other nine just kind of, oh, I'm better. I'm, gonna, I'm going on with my life. Let's look at this one leper. What happens here? He does three things. He comes back to Jesus and he's praising God. He's running back to Jesus and he's just declaring verbally praises to God, to Jesus, and he falls at Jesus' feet and then he thanks Jesus. So three things. He's praising, he falls at Jesus' feet, and he thanks Jesus. Gratitude. The act of falling at somebody's feet. This is an act of submission and acknowledging authority. This leper is acknowledging Jesus' authority and he's acknowledging his identity. It's an act of reverence. And then there's this extreme gratitude. This gratitude is a sign that you've received something from someone and you want to thank them. You want to acknowledge where this came from. By this act, this one leper shows himself to be a person who recognizes who Jesus is and responds appropriately. Now, so far, this is a pretty typical healing story. You read about these a lot in the Gospels. There's an issue, Jesus heals, there's some thanksgiving, hopefully. But this is where the story takes a radical turn. Luke just kind of pulls the rug out of the readers as, as they're reading this. He makes this audacious statement. And I love that there's like a little dash there and it says, and it was a Samaritan. They're reading this for the first time. They would just be like, oh, what? It was a Samaritan? They wouldn't, even be, they wouldn't even consider the fact that Samaritans would have been part of that group, let alone the one, the one person who had inclination to go and be thankful and gratitude was the Samaritan. It's such an incredibly audacious statement. It's, in, it's intense. And it's hard for us to really understand this. But if, if, you take, if you take into consideration the cultural background of what's going on there, this is such a big deal. Out of the ten lepers, it's the, it's the hated Samaritan who shows gratitude. It truly is the outsider. He's the one that recognizes who Jesus was, and he ends up being the only one who responds appropriately. He falls at Jesus' feet, and in doing so, he honors Jesus as Lord and as Master. 
again, hard for us to grasp the significance of this. Jesus crossed all social, religious, and cultural barriers by, by even uh, responding to the Samaritan, let alone healing him. It's such an incredible statement about who Jesus is and what he's about. We read about this in the woman at the well as well in um, John chapter 4. It's an incredible meeting that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. And, and, and understanding the cultural background, you, it's just like, what are you doing talking to the Samaritan, let alone who's a woman? And yet Jesus doesn't care about those social issues. He says, all people matter, all people I care about. So the Samaritan is the only one who recognized the divine, who only, the only one who recognized and responded to the divine action that Jesus uh, did in healing. Jesus asks, what happened to the other nine? All ten men are cleansed. All ten receive mercy. So what separated one man from the others? It's not the healing because they all got that. It wasn't even acknowledging that Jesus is master because they all said that. It was... It was the other nine's lack of gratitude that separated them from the one. And it was the one's ability to offer thankfulness that separated him from the other nine. That's it. He fell at Jesus' feet and acknowledged him as Lord and, and worshipped him. All ten received blessing, but they didn't acknowledge. Nine of them didn't acknowledge or give thanks to the one who gave out those blessings. And that's the difference. The act of thanksgiving is an act of identifying where your blessings come from. Acknowledging, first of all, that you have been blessed, and secondly, giving acknowledgement to the person that has given you those blessings. That's what true thanksgiving is. Who do you acknowledge as Lord? Who do you give thanks to when you're thankful? Who do you give thanks to? I can't imagine not being a Christian because when life, when I think of the good things in my life, I, there's something inside of me that wants to thank that wants to give gratitude. If you're not a Christian, you don't believe in God, what do you do with that? I've often, I've often wondered that. Who do you thank if you don't believe that there's a God who has given you all these things and who is behind all of this? Only one out of ten responded appropriately. The irony is that the one who got it, Jesus says, is a foreigner. He's an outsider. He's a non-Jew. He's a Samaritan. And yet Jesus says it is the foreigner who gets it. He behaves in a manner of a non-foreigner. He behaves in the manner of a Jewish person who should have got it. It's not ethnic or social situations that save him. Rather, it's his faith in Jesus and his response to him as Lord in gratitude that saved him. This is what enacts salvation in his life. It is a faithful response to a gracious and generous God who saves and who heals. So that's our story. And I think it's a really good one. And I think it's a good reminder for us, uh, for people who have much to be thankful for. And I think the application is really obvious, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Thankfulness is a natural and expected response of those who have received God's many blessings. This is something that should flow from us naturally, a characteristic that should be evident in all of us who are following Jesus, a defining characteristic. This summer, I was reading many stories of persecuted Christians. There's a lot of things they had in common. One of them was this attitude of joy and thankfulness, even in the midst of the worst suffering especially when they went to prison. What really set them apart from the other prisoners was joy and thankfulness. I read some specific accounts of Chinese Christians. And they would go to prison and they would often set up like a little house church in prison because the other prisoners were so drawn to them because they had this joy and this thankfulness about them that no one else did and people were drawn to them. For the Chinese church, their seminary is going to prison. You're not really a real pastor until you've spent time in prison. It's super interesting. But... 
it is the joy and the thanksgiving that really sets them apart from the others. It makes me think of Paul and Silas in the book of Acts. They're in prison, they're in chains, they don't know what the future is, and yet what are they doing? They're singing, they're praising, they're lifting up songs to Jesus, and, uh, and others are drawn to it. So the question that, that, I, that I'm forced to ask myself this morning and that I want to leave with you is this. Is thankfulness a defining characteristic of your life? Is it a defining characteristic of your life? Do you intentionally choose to live a life of gratitude that inevitably leads to praise? Something to think about, something to ponder. Sadly, I think it's just, it's, um, it's human nature for us to take it for granted. And to be like the other nine, I think the interesting part of this story, it's not like nine came back and thanked Jesus and it's the one who kind of missed the point. It's the opposite. It's only one really got it. The other nine just kind of got on with life and forgot to, forgot to be thankful and forgot to live uh, with gratefulness, which I think is a picture of human, humanity in general, unfortunately. So I want to end with this. This is a psalm that I read quite often to remind me of the many blessings that I have and to remind me to intentionally choose to be a thankful person. It's one of my favorite psalms. And with this, I will end. Psalm 103. I'm going to read some of it here. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. I love reading that. So I've got to remind myself, Chris, don't forget. Don't forget. Who forgives your sins and heals your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. So we're going to end our morning uh, singing 10,000 Reasons, because it's a song that uh, really highlights uh, this, this, uh, this psalm. Yes. That would be great. Praise God. Uh, thanks for sharing. That's great. And we have been praying for you. Um, it's great. Invite Curtis up. Why don't we pray and just spend some time thanking God. So I'm, I'm going to be quiet for a bit. Maybe you can, in your heart, think about some of the things that you are really grateful for this morning. And we're going to pray.
Father God, we have so much to be grateful for. And this morning we just take this time to declare our praises to you, to bend our knees towards you and to recognize you as Lord, as Master. God, we submit to you. We thank you that you are a Father who loves his children, that you are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger. You are rich in mercy. You satisfy our desires with good things. Oh God, may we not forget your benefits, your many, many benefits. Thank you for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace, for your divine healing, for your presence. God, that even despite the difficulties of life, and they are there, we acknowledge that, we don't ignore that, but despite that, you are present, that you care, you walk with us in it, that we are not alone, we don't face it alone ever. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, God, and we give you praise this morning. Amen.